the sermon series we're doing is called Seven Stories. And so, so far, we've looked at the parable of the lost sheep. Tom Combs preached on that great parable of Jesus. Last week, we looked at this uh, parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil. And then today, we're going to be looking at the parable of the wicked tenants from Matthew 21. If you remember, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabole. And so, uh, para. Uh, the, the prefix means basically alongside of something or beside, and then bole means to throw or cast. And so the idea of a parable is that you take one thing that you don't know very well, and you put it down, and then you take something else that you do know very well, and you lay it next to the other thing, and you basically say, well, if you can understand A a little bit, that will help you understand B. And so, um, you know, parables are Essentially, they're similes, they're metaphors, they're analogies in various ways. One of the ones that you might be familiar with comes from a movie called Shrek, which maybe some of you guys have heard of. But it's where Shrek tells Donkey, he says, ogres are like onions. And Donkey says, you mean they stink? And of course, Shrek says, yes, but no, that's not what I meant. And then Donkey says, oh, you mean you leave them out in the sun and they get all brown and start sprouting little white hairs? And Shrek goes, no, layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. You get it? We both have layers. And then Donkey says, oh, you both have layers. But you know, not everybody likes onions, right? Okay. So point being, that's a very, I mean, that's not really a bearable, but it's, it, you get the idea. It's, it's laying something that, that Donkey didn't know much about, uh, ogres, besides something he didn't know a lot about, which was onions, right? So that's sort of the idea there. On the other hand, so another way of thinking about a parable, and there are any number of different reasons that Jesus used parables, um, but one of the primary reasons that Jesus used parables was to draw people in. And so um, it just doesn't matter who you are. When I was a youth pastor, I would use illustrations all the time because you could talk for a couple minutes before junior high kids would start to kind of zone out. And you told the story, and they would sort of focus back in. And then when you were done with the story, they'd zone out again. They'd tell another story. And so that's part of what Jesus was doing. He's getting their attention. He's drawing people in. And not only drawing them in to to sort of maintain their interest level, but drawing them in in order to communicate something to them, a principle or a truth. And so it's, it's really easy to contradict or to rebut a principle or a theory. That's really easy to do that. It's much more different to then wrestle with or rebut or contradict a story because they draw you in. Stories demand that you wrestle with them or that you wrestle some, through some cognitive dissonance that the story creates. And so parables also require, require us simultaneously not only to wrestle with those stories, to see where we fit, um, but yeah, that's also part of what they do is they, they cause you to ask the question like, am I in this story? W- you know, where do I fit in this parable? And so that's true for our story, our parable today, this parable of the wicked tenants. It's actually appropriate and right for us to say, are you talking about me? Am I in this story? Let me do this. Let me take a moment, and I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll read this parable, this story of Jesus, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you so much um, for inviting us into your presence. Um, thank you for caring enough uh, to, to, to invite us to be daughters and to invite us to be sons. Thank you for caring enough um, in order to reveal to us who you are and also who we are. And Father, I pray that um, we would take your word for it. I pray that we would let you be the author of the story. I pray that we would let you be the engineer of the creation, Father. I pray that we would trust in you as our good Father and in your Son, Jesus, as 
our Savior. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21. Here we go. Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Hear another parable. There was a, a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this par- heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Thank you. If any of you guys uh, don't know Aubrey, you need to get to know her. She's awesome. And so thank you, Aubrey, for doing that. So as we're looking at this parable of Jesus, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, the question should rise to our mind automatically, well, how am I supposed to understand this parable? How am I supposed to interpret it? Where am I in this parable? How does it apply to me? And so before we really engage in that, you have to understand the context. And so I mentioned this last week, but one of my professors in seminary used to always say context is part of text. And so in this case, there's, there's really two different contexts we're going to look at. The first one is sort of the narrative context. Like as you're reading the book of Matthew, where does this parable fall in line with the things that preceded it? And so it's important to understand that in Matthew chapter 21, it begins with a triumphal entry. And so Jesus and the disciples are making their way into Jerusalem. Jerusalem swells during the Passover to over a million people, even back then. And so there were these crowds, and they went before Jesus, and they were crying, Hosanna in the highest. They lay down palm branches as he and his disciples enter the city. And then later, after entering the city, Jesus goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. So he's causing quite the stir He leaves the temple, he goes and spends the night in Bethany, which is nearby, an area just outside of Jerusalem. And on the way, he passes by a fig tree that doesn't have any fruit, and Jesus curses the fig tree. Interesting. The next day, Jesus goes back to the temple, he teaches, and after teaching, the Pharisees ask him, by whose authority are you doing all of these things? And what's interesting is Jesus, instead of answering their question, he responds with a question, and then he tells them this parable, right? So there's a particular narrative context, but there's also a literary context. 
What I mean by that is this, is this parable that Jesus tells is actually comprised of two Old Testament passages, which you might not know unless you really knew the Old Testament really well. I don't, but I do have access to commentaries, so I can tell you this today. So here's the literary context. So the literary, the the passages from the Old Testament are Isaiah 5 and Psalm 118. So we're going to read Isaiah, just a section of Isaiah 5, and you'll see how Jesus takes Isaiah 5 and he uses it to construct this parable. So I'll just read a couple verses from Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press press as a well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Again, remember that fig tree. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. In other words, what God is saying through Isaiah is he's saying, woe to those who rely on upon their own wisdom in opposition to the wisdom of God. Woe to those who rely upon their own intelligence in opposition to the intelligence and the knowledge of God. Psalm 118 is the other piece of the Old Testament that Jesus uses to construct this parable. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so Psalm 118 here teaches that we can't enter the gates on our own, right? We can only enter into the kingdom of God in this mysterious way, by this stone which the builder rejected, but this stone which is our righteousness. And so Jesus takes these two things and he builds this parable, this story. So when you take all of these things, you take the narrative context and the literary context, then I think what you're left with is this thesis statement that I'm going to unpack today, and it's this, that we are hostile to the kingdom of God precisely because it threatens our control, our power, it threatens our kingdom. And when we are threatened, or when our kingdom is threatened by God's kingdom, then what we actually do is we resist him, and we seek to take control ourselves. And if we do that, if we reject God's kingdom, and if we reject God's son, then we will miss out on the very blessings of this kingdom of God that we so desire. So let's begin with that first statement. We're hostile to the kingdom of God because it threatens our control. If we were to read Isaiah chapter 5 in total, what you would see is this is the entire message of Isaiah chapter 5. What Isaiah is basically saying here is God is confronting the nation of Israel through him, and he's saying, look, He's like, you're trying to rely upon your own knowledge. You're trying to rely upon your own wisdom. You're trying to take matters into your own hands in order to build your own kingdom. But this is my kingdom. So Jesus speaks of this kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. He speaks of it throughout the Gospels. And so before moving on, let's define it just a little bit. Theology usually defines the kingdom as the rule and reign of God. We 
actually sung a song this morning that used those, that language. And this is sort of a macro reality, as in a reality where God undoes the effects of sin and undoes the effects of the fall. That's very much what the kingdom of God means. But if there's a macro reality, there's also kind of a micro reality of the kingdom of God as well. There's a personal application, meaning that when someone yields control over their heart and over their life to the rule and reign of God, then the kingdom of God is within them that the beginning of that kingdom is personal for each of us. So it's not only at this macro level of the undoing of the effects of the fall, but it's the undoing of the effects of of the fall in your very own heart. John Piper says this. He says, The new emphasis, which is more explicit in the epistles, declares Jesus is Lord. In fact, if you would have pressed me, I'd say the kingdom has come is almost synonymous with Jesus is Lord. Lord. Or to say it the other way around, Jesus is Lord is almost synonymous in the epistles with the kingdom, the reign, the king has come. And so the question is, how does that apply here in this parable, in the story of Jesus? If you remember, again, we talked a, a bit about Genesis, I mean about chapter 21, and how it begins with Jesus and the disciples entering into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And as Jesus and the disciples made their way into Jerusalem, a big crowd gathered to welcome him, Jesus, into the city. And here's what we read they were saying. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, here's the real issue here. Look at how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious, look at how they respond. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he, that is Jesus, did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, right? They were indignant because the kingdom of God threatened their kingdoms, threatened their power, threatened their control. Throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees, the religious elite, they're opposing Jesus. They were the very people who should have been looking for and should have been excited about the Messiah coming, and instead they felt threatened by him, especially as they saw their influence and their power and their control wane as the crowds who used to look to them for direction were now turning to Jesus instead. That dynamic of losing power and feeling threatened is not at all uncommon. Uh, I'm going to quote a very uh, deep and reflective artistic movie called uh, Avengers Infinity War. And uh, some of you guys are familiar with this movie, especially if you're under 25. And uh, there's a scene in the movie where the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, pick up Thor. He's floating around in outer space. It's kind of a long story. Anyway, they bring him into their spaceship, and he's laying there on this table, and he's kind of unconscious, but he's pretty handsome. You know, he's got, got this cool beard and great hair, and he's pretty muscular. And then he wakes up, and he's got this, like, super deep voice, and he's got kind of, I guess, an australian british accent or whatever. And Quill, who's sort of the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy, feels threatened. And so he all, all of a sudden he starts sort of talking in a deeper voice. You guys remember this scene? 
And so he starts talking in a deeper voice with a British accent, too, like this. And the little raccoon creature goes, Quill, why are you lowering your voice? And he's like, I'm not lowering my voice. Anyway, and then everybody else kind of makes fun of him because he's threatened by Thor because Thor's really handsome and has a great accent and a deep voice. And so he's threatened that he might lose Gamora, he might lose the Guardians, like these people are following him. And so he feels threatened, right? And that's normal. And it's a silly example, but it highlights the way that human beings actually do respond to a perceived threat. In this case, the Pharisees realized that Jesus posed a threat to their kingdom, their power, their control, their authority, and as a result, they opposed God's Son, right? And as, oppo- and, and, and as a result, they oppose His kingdom. What about us? Are we threatened by the kingdom of God? Are we threatened by what it might cost us? One of my favorite professors, a guy named Dan Doriani at Covenant Seminary, preached a sermon once, and uh, the sort of the tagline of the sermon was, it's free, but it's costly. It's free, but it's costly. And what he was saying is, essentially, you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You can't earn your way into the kingdom of God. It's a free gift, and you can only inherit the kingdom because it's an inheritance. It is a gift, but it will cost you more than you could ever realize. What will it cost you? Well, it'll cost you your freedom, actually. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so fidelity to God's kingdom means entrusting our bodies to him and saying, all right, God, I'm going to actually believe that you have the ultimate authority to tell me who I am and how it is that I'm supposed to use this body that you've given me and that you've redeemed. So the kingdom will cost us our freedom. It'll also cost us our hearts. It also demands our desires. Listen to uh, Jesus summarizing the Old Testament law in Matthew 22. He says this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so, in other words, Jesus says all the Old Testament law is about loving God, about giving him your heart, and about giving him your desires. And oh, by the way, the second part of the law is making sure that you give your heart and your desires to those around you. It costs you your freedom. It costs you your heart. It costs you your desires. It's free, but it's costly. It may also cost your very life, Jesus says. In Matthew 16, he says this. He's speaking of the disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, you're not your own, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so fidelity to the kingdom of God means entrusting your heart, your desires, but even your very life to God, right? It is free, but it's costly, right? And so no wonder the Pharisees opposed God. No wonder they opposed Jesus. No wonder they opposed his kingdom because they realized it was going to cost them their power, their control, their kingdom. Second point. I think we can draw out of these passages and this parable in particular is how we respond 
when our kingdom, our power, our control is threatened. When we are threatened by God's kingdom, we resist him, we resist God, and we seek to take control ourselves. Let's read verses 34 through 39. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. That would have been the payment for renting the field uh, to these workers. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. When he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So it's very clear to see here that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. It's very clear that he's talking about the prophets, even to some degree John the Baptist. And he's saying, look what happens. Look what you've done when you feel threatened. And so the question for those of us in here this morning is what happens what happens when you feel threatened? How, what happens when we feel threatened? Uh, psychology and biology both teach us that when we feel threatened, we either flee or we fight, right? Fight or flight. And then, of course, there's the third option, too, which is to freeze. There's a little um, website that I found called Anxiety Canada. And as I was researching um, fleeing, fighting, or freezing, uh, there was this little write-up, which I thought was kind of funny and, and helpful, so I'm going to read it. So it says this, F3, or the fight-flight-freeze response, is the body's automatic built-in system designed to protect us from threat or danger. For example, when you hear the words, look out, you may be surprised to find how fast you move, thankfully so, as you narrowly miss a flying puck sailing through your kitchen window. It's Canada, right? It's a puck, hockey puck. We might say baseball, soccer ball, whatever. For them, it's a puck. Or... When you see a bear on the trail up ahead, again, it's Canada, you stop and remain quiet and still until it moves on. In both scenarios, your system demonstrates its effectiveness at protecting you from danger. In fact, the fight or flight response actually occurs faster than our brains can actually process the information. It's a cool little scientific tidbit. Somehow the system has developed to circumvent the brain to give you the action that's required to protect yourself. It goes on to say, the F3 system, fight, flight, freeze, is critical to our survival, for survival from true threat or danger. But what happens when there is no real danger? Interestingly, anxiety, and again, that's sort of the main subject of this website, anxiety can also trigger the system into action when we believe there's threat or danger, even if there isn't. For example, you may yell at your partner for pushing you into agreeing to speak at a conference you don't really feel ready for. And so you fight. Or you avoid going to a party or leave early because you don't feel comfortable around unfamiliar people. And so you flee, flight. Or your mind goes blank when your boss asks you a question. You freeze. All of these are examples that can cause anxiety, which in turn can mistakenly trigger the F3 alarm. Public speaking, parties, and answering questions are not dangerous situations. But if your alarm system is set to high alert, it will go off even in these harmless situations, right? What's interesting here is uh, the situation with the Pharisees was that they actually decided to fight, but there actually was real harm coming for their kingdoms. The story of our relationship with God after the fall is actually one of fighting 
and of fleeing, I would argue. And so after we rebelled against God and our hearts became twisted and sinful, broken, our relationship with God is one of fighting and fleeing. We're constantly fighting with God for control over our lives. We're trying to build our kingdoms. We're fighting with God for that. But we're also fleeing from him in order to take control. It's actually the story of the prodigal sons, same exact story that Jesus tells. So fighting. The servants in this parable represent the prophets that God has sent to his people that Israel rejected or they beat or they killed. So Jeremiah was beaten. Elijah was hunted down. John the Baptist has already been killed. And others were stoned and would be stoned like Stephen. Think for just a moment about your relationship with God. How much of your relationship with God, honestly, is you fighting with God for control over his kingdom, right? How much of your relationship with God is actually fighting for control? I would argue that if you're honest with yourself, that it's actually far, far more than you realize. What about fleeing from God? We see that in scripture too. We see Jonah, right, fleeing from God. We see Elijah fleeing from God. They both tried unsuccessfully to run from God precisely because God's vision for his kingdom and for their lives offended their vision for their kingdom and their lives. That's precisely why they ran. And again, I think if we're honest, we would argue and see that we flee from God far more than we realize. Probably run away from God, I do, in a myriad of ways. You might physically quit attending church because you just don't want to hear about what Scripture has to say about who God is or who you are about, or about the Christian life. And so you may just walk away from the church. You can listen to the radio or a podcast or watch YouTube or Spotify so you don't have to listen to God, right? I do that all the time in the morning. Instead of taking time to pray for seven minutes while I drive into town, I can turn on sports talk radio. Sometimes it's because I want to hear what happened in the world of sports, but sometimes it's because I'm like, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't know that I actually do want to hear from you, God, because I'm, I'm intimidated by what it is you might have for me. Just being honest. Some of us walk away from godly relationships that we know might challenge our desires and our preferences and our kingdoms precisely where they conflict with God's. And so we don't want to surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us the truth. And so we just sort of enter into an echo chamber of people who tell us what we do want to hear. So we're hostile to the kingdom of God because it threatens our control, our power, our kingdom. And because we're threatened by his, his kingdom and the demands of it over our hearts and lives, we resist God and we seek to take control for ourselves. And then finally, what we see in this parable is that if we reject God's kingdom and if we reject God's son, then we will miss out on the kingdom of God. Look at verses 40 through 44. This is back into this parable. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, by the way, that's God, what will he do to those tenants? Right, that's the Pharisees. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, that is the Pharisees, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now again, remember Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here. These are the religious leaders. They're the religious elite, and this parable is actually about them, but they don't realize it yet. Right? They don't know yet that it's really about them. And so Jesus asks them a very logical question. 
right? He says this. He says, how do you think the landowner will respond to the tenants who killed his servants and his son? And so the Pharisees are drawn into this story, right? And they respond by saying this. They say, well, the landowner will surely bring those wretches to a wretched end. In other words, he, the landowner, will surely punish or kill them and would be totally justified in doing so, right? What's interesting is that Jesus, as usual, doesn't directly confirm or deny their response, but rather he says this, verse 42. He says to the Pharisees, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And so Jesus is not so subtly telling them, I am the stone that you're in the process of rejecting. And you don't know it, but I am the cornerstone upon which the entire kingdom of God is being built. Everything arises and everything falls upon me. The Pharisees were simply doing what all of us do in one way or another, however. They were seeking to silence the sun. Right? We, we all, I promise you, in our brokenness, we're not all bad, we're also not all good, but all of us seek to silence the sun. But in doing so, the Pharisees and us too, in rejecting Jesus, they were in the process of losing the very thing that they most deeply desired, which was actually the kingdom of God. Romans 14 Verse 17 tells us, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, your deepest desires, righteousness, that is goodness and honesty and integrity and beauty and peace, peace with God, peace with your fellow man, internal peace and joy, this emotional solidity, that's rooted in the transcendent reality of God's goodness, but also his power, his sovereignty, all those things that the Pharisees actually did desire, that we desire most deeply, those things cannot be had apart from Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And if you, if we try to achieve all of those things by building our own kingdoms and gathering them up for ourselves, but doing it apart from God's, If you try to wrestle the inheritance away, then you'll be dashed upon the very stone that you've rejected. So what do we do with this parable today? What what should you do with it? What should I do with it? Well, two things. One, it sounds like a really harsh parable, right? It would be very easy to walk out of here today kicking rocks and mumbling to yourself. But I don't want you to miss the grace that is actually found in this passage, the the love, the mercy of Jesus. We we always think about Jesus being tough on the Pharisees, and he absolutely was. But don't forget that he's still imploring them to come into the kingdom, right? That's that's part of the reason he's telling the story. That's half the message of the story of the prodigal son. If you guys remember, the story of the prodigal son ends with the older brother staying outside, but the father going out to him and basically saying, please come in, 
right? It's also the message of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost treasure. Each of these parables is actually an opportunity for the Pharisees and for you and me to repent, to trust Jesus and to enter into his kingdom, right? Jesus hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on me. He's still offering us grace and saying, come in to the kingdom, receive the righteousness, receive the peace, receive the joy that only I can give you. And so hear the grace of this story. But then the second thing I would encourage you to do with this parable today is to wrestle, right? If you remember the beginning of the last few sermons, I've talked about how parables actually create cognitive dissonance. In other words, they're not easy for you to understand. You have to work with them. You actually have to wrestle with them. You could, if you wanted to, simply take my word for it and believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. You could believe me when I tell you that Jesus is the cornerstone upon which to build your life. Or you can actually wrestle with Jesus. And I would argue that if you're here today, then Jesus is bringing the fight to you. Genesis 32 tells this really interesting story about Jacob. And uh, Jacob is this interesting young man. He's a manipulator. He's a con man. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's actually weak and insecure, partly because his dad loved his older brother Esau more than he loved him. And his dad, frankly, just wasn't all that proud of him. You can read the story. But God chose Jacob. God blessed Jacob. God loved Jacob. God pursued Jacob. God was determined to heal Jacob's heart. God was determined to heal Jacob's life. And in the story of Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God, or or rather, God wrestles with him. James Montgomery Boyce says this, it's not that Jacob was seeking God so earnestly that when God, as it were, got close to him, he grappled with him and refused to let him go until he blessed him. It is true that Jacob later begged for a blessing, but at the beginning, it's not Jacob who seeks God to wrestle with him. Rather, it is God who comes to wrestle with Jacob to bring him to a point of both physical and spiritual submission. And so I would definitely ask you to see the grace of this story today, but I would also definitely ask you to wrestle with God because I think he is here to wrestle with you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I thank you for uh, wrestling with us through Scripture, through your Spirit, um, through sisters and brothers in Christ. Uh, Father, I thank you that, um, that you love us enough to pursue us, um, that, that you love us enough to send your Son to come to earth in order that he might um, seek those that were lost, that had wandered away, that um, did not trust you. And so, Father, I pray that today that we would hear your grace in this parable. Uh, but, Father, maybe more than anything, I pray that we, would, um, that we wouldn't back down from wrestling with you and with your Son. And I pray that in doing so, that we might actually see that you love us and that you're for us and that you're with us. And you desire what's best for us, that you desire to give us righteousness and goodness and peace and joy that can only come by having hearts that have been won over by you, our Father. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.